Hi, welcome to Crypto Ramble. I'm Desiree. Today I'm speaking with Kapoor, aka Joe Sky. I know him from both of our involvement uh, with the Particle Project. And we're going to be talking about one of our favorite topics, which is decentralized marketplaces and specifically what we call private markets. Uh, we're also going to be talking about use cases for private markets and, and then talk about some current events like the backed unexpected fallout from that and also a bit more general the narrative that is in the crypto space and specifically about Bitcoin as well. So welcome to the show and the first thing I'd like to do is to ask who I'm talking to to introduce themselves to you guys. I'm thinking why don't you let them know uh, the audience who you are, what you do and where your interest comes from in crypto decentralization and private markets. Okay, um, so, hey, hello. Uh, my real name's um, Dr. Kapil Amrasinga. I'm actually an emergency medicine doctor. I've been practicing for close to nine years. Um, I'm pretty experienced in that field. I've been actively involved in cryptocurrency since around 2000, what, 2016. Um, and I came into it through Ethereum now. My first, I was actually aware of it back in 2012 in Bitcoin, and I cry sometimes that I never bought the 5K that I said I would at that time every day. But that, that, that's the point. I got into Ethereum. I found out about that randomly through, um, basically through a random article on my Google News feed. Found the concept really fascinating. Saw a lot of future potential value as a technology in terms of helping the world, making it a more fundamentally efficient place. And I saw a lot of potential speculative value. So I, I entered into it as a speculative player. I knew nothing really about finance at the time. I think it's fair to say that I got lucky in terms of where I am, in terms of those choices that I made. Um, but I found it so fascinating. I learned a lot about financial markets. I learned a lot about cryptocurrency markets. Um, I've, I've studied them fairly extensively over the last couple of years. Uh, and I, have, I think I have a fairly good understanding of how they work and why they work. Um, so around how I got into Particle was around about that time, not long after I discovered um, Ethereum, I actually discovered one of the precursors to the Particle project, uh, SDC, Shadowcash. And I was really fascinated by the idea of a decentralized, fully private marketplace. Um, I saw a lot of potential value in that concept, so I kind of kept a keen eye on that project for a while, and I sort of saw the direction it was kind of going in, which was towards a, a genuinely honest, privacy-centric protocol. Um, and I saw a lot of general global use cases for that, so I've been a really passionate advocate for that project ever since. Um, now, that kind of leads us to like our current point where I've done a lot of articles, um, you know, about Particle over the years, uh, and I've sort of gradually, unofficially evolved into one of the community ambassadors. I'm based out in the UK, and I'm one of the UK community ambassadors for this project. So I'm always happy to talk about the Particle project or cryptocurrency or anything related to this field. It is fascinating. Okay, okay, that's a great um, intro and background. So first, I'd like to kind of define what we mean when we say private markets and then how Particle relates to that. So my idea of private markets is this. I've seen a lot of definitions of privacy, but the purest form is 
one where you don't need to provide any personal information to transact, i.e. the medium with which that you're transacting, it neither st stores or records your personal details at any point. Now, Particles come up with a really fascinating solution. It's taken e-commerce and given people the ability to buy and sell goods online without a single bit of personal detail. detail. You know, you just give a shipping address which has to have nothing really to do with who you are. And I think that's really fascinating because, you know, if you, if you look at the old economy and then the modern economy and then the emergent economy, the old economy, going way back before banking, you know, if you go to the old economy, it was very much barter-based, cash-based. It was very privacy-centric by nature. The transactions were essentially face-to-face. -face. They were built on the on, on the trust and honor of people kind of meeting together, exchanging goods, etc. In order to go to the digital economy and exchange goods online, you know, by default, because of the way the internet was structured, you know, you needed to have sign-ups and you needed to have registrations, you know, data had, personal data had to be stored in order to transact online. There was no real cash in hand system for this. Um, but the advent of decentralization means that we now have the technology that allows you to effectively sort of transact almost cash in hand style but without having to give up any personal information. I think that's really useful from, from a fraud protection point of view, from protecting yourself from exploitation from others' point of view. That is something that I find fascinating and I'm really passionate about. Because it is really, really easy to get scammed and swindled. I mean, it takes the most rudimentary research to figure out just how easy it is to jack someone's personal data and then misuse it. And you see so many instances of it now with online service providers. Equifax is one that keeps coming to mind. Facebook, you know, um, LinkedIn, you know, all of these big service providers at some point have basically been hacked. Uh, and that means all of this private information has been taken over by potentially bad actors who can misuse it. And I think, you know, if you're now providing a service for transacting goods where you don't have to give up a piece of information that's so fundamentally valuable to your identity, and I think there's a real value in that space. Yeah, that that's a, a great uh, outline of why private markets are sort of necessary. It's actually going back to how things were when people used to transact with each other. I just want to mention for anyone listening who's not aware, even though you might watch my content, um, that the project that he mentioned, Particle, is first and foremost a, a privacy coin, just a currency that introduces fungibility into crypto. It uses the same technology that Monero uses, but it's based on Bitcoin. And then the Particle is building a marketplace, which is the first decentralized application being built on top of uh, the platform. So it's just for a little bit of background, in case you don't know. Um, but that was a, a great outline of that. And then could you go more into where you see the, the use case for these private markets? That's something that I thought we could really connect on. And also due to your background, um, you have some insight on specific use cases and then also some, some general ones too. So uh, I think we have to, I, let, let's let's address the Pandora's box of this and let's get the, the easy ones out of the way. Okay, look, 
people can go ahead and say DNMs are the UK, is a potential use case, but I'll get into why Particle is really designed not for that. The, the use cases I actually see the Particle network for are, are business to business, business to consumer, enterprise level applications. So for me, I like to think of this in terms of intellectual property, uh, supply chains, uh, and manufacturing processes. Now, if I am a manufacturer of a, of a fairly niche or high-end good, um, you know what particle allows me. To, what particle is going to allow me to do that? This feature should be out by the end of the year. Um, you know, is it will allow me to set up a market on the particle network, and that market will have its own unique address. And the only people that could see that market would be people who possess that address. So it's only if yeah, that can just be a private market between me and my trusted suppliers. So it could just be my marketplace and I have a network of suppliers and I just want to transact with them in a way that no one else can see what's going on. So if I'm a manufacturer, I, I can set up various contracts between these guys and I don't have to worry about industrial espionage, corporate sabotage. Uh, I can effectively mask my manufacturing and supply chain from my competitors. From an R&D point of view, if I've got intellectual property that's extremely useful, say if I'm a chef, okay? If I'm a chef and I have a secret sauce or a magical recipe where the ingredients must be completely hidden at all costs, I could set up a private market, one-to-one -one private markets with each of my suppliers because this, this network can support potentially an infinite number of private markets on it. So I could have an infinite number, I could have 20 markets as a manufacturer of this special food item and each market could be, if it's got 20 ingredients, one market to each supplier for that good. And that's a private channel between me and that supplier that no one else will necessarily need to know exists unless that supplier somehow decides to give that away or unless I give the address for that marketplace away. So that's a feature that really excites me. So the protecting your intellectual property, I think that's highly relevant. You know, in an era where you've got large companies, you know, potentially like Amazon, who have all the power in the world to do data analytics on the businesses operating on their networks and, and, and then look and analyze the supply chains. They've got all this power where they could potentially engage in potential anti, I'm not saying they do, but they have all the power to potentially analyze successful businesses. Uh, replicate. They, they do do this. This is this is no. They completely um, mine the data on their platform in order to make their own version of it and sell it. So this is something that Amazon does do for sure. And, and this is it for me. If you're a small business trying to grow and succeed, that is not something you need. If, if you've got something precious and unique to protect, that is you know that is not something you need to be worrying about. If you want to stay competitive. I say that's of particular interest to me. If you kind of, and I feel that's a, a big white hat case for this network. Mm -hmm. I think I think that the potential for it is huge. It's in the trillions or more. I think it's a liquidity expander for, for anyone who understands that concept. You know, I think it could. What does that What does that mean? So it's the idea that it could. It's the I without going into a full explanation of liquidity. It's, it's the idea that. This network, if knowledge of this functionality was well enough known and this network gained sufficient traction and became the de facto service provider for this sort of feature, 
because to my knowledge at the moment at this moment in time it's the only network in the world that's actually developing or even close to deploying something like this then the amount of potential business it could attract is huge and as a liquidity multiplier the amount of speculative interest that would then generate on top if you look at liquidity in terms of market cap and market cap in terms of supply of circulating supply times speculative spot price per token the, the speculative token determined by traders on an exchange market i think you'd see a lot of organic usage and then on top of that you'd see a lot of speculative interest um i'm going to just go back to bitcoin and just go into a little bit of history if you're around in 2012 you know about the silk road you know that bitcoin was the de facto currency of the silk road and you knew that that was an organic use case for it. Now, that wasn't necessarily a great organic use case. It's not one that I condone. It's one that I'm aware of. But the fact that it succeeded in that drew speculators in. Speculators and traders and people who are interested in finance could look at that and say, okay, that is a spec that is a speculative currency tool that's working. We can build an infrastructure around this. So, you know, you, you go to NTGOX and you look at the sudden speculative price bumps as traders and financiers get interested in that market and it suddenly goes to $1,200, crashes, starts crashing along. But in that period of time where it's, you know, crashing in price over a period of a year from 1200 all the way to 100 you've got massive development of infrastructure to support Bitcoin as a currency network. Uh, and well, now it's involved more just store of value network. We'll get into that later. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, going back to the idea of a liquidity multiplier, um, and this is a bit of a ramble, crypto ramble. Um, <laughs> I'm of the view that cryptocurrency, yes. I'm of the view that cryptocurrencies will expand global liquidity. They will enable more free flow of trade. They will reduce friction of trade, and therefore they will increase trading velocity. That increase in trading velocity will increase the amount of speculative and organic value that's exchanged and that will lead to raising of market caps across the board of various entities, speculative or otherwise. Um, so if we look at Bitcoin's market cap, that a few years ago was a fraction of what it is now. If you project 10 years into the future, I think it will be potentially much larger. Uh, and you can apply this to standard economics as well. The global economy, whether you want to believe it or not, overall has grown exponentially if you look at it over a 50, 60 year time frame or a 100 year time frame. Most obvious point of reference would be the S&P 500. Just look at that curve on a lifetime and you'll see what I mean. And that's because people are generating goods, people are generating value, therefore the amount of value that's going up effectively the amount of currency that must be generated is also going up proportionate to that and yeah people complain about currency inflation but as long as the amount of organic value relative to currency inflation is kind of the same then you've effectively got liquidity expansion so in a roundabout way i hope that made sense i believe particle could be a liquidity expander especially for small businesses looking to grow organically and looking to you know maybe resist uh, absorption or monopolization from people that may be looking to cannibalize them. Uh, no, that's a great explanation. I think at least this wasn't something until I started um, learning more about, say, business or finance. 
I'm mostly in, in school, but outside of school as well. It's not something that's very intuitive to people that because humans are generating more goods and services, that means that you'll need more currency to help facilitate that exchange. It seems very static uh, in the minds. Or aspect of value. If your currency inflation matches the growth in organic value, it's great. It's when currency inflation goes way beyond what a country is organically producing, that's when it becomes problematic. Your examples being places like Zimbabwe or Venezuela or, or Germany back in the uh, late 30s, those are examples where monetary policy went haywire. I'm gonna, uh, I don't want to go too far into this. I, I, I hate the concept of quantitative easing. I think that's our modern fancy version of. Um, hyperinflation. I think it's just really good marketing for hyperinflation in the West. But anyway, yeah, I, I, I yes, spawn. Yeah, I, I just want to um, say that it's not intuitive that um, market caps just for countries, you could think of countries or companies around the world will probably continue to rise. I just, yeah. that's not a very intuitive uh, concept for people. And I like the phrase you use about reducing the friction um, of trade. Um, and I also want to frame this discussion about com competition as a small business, not just with the platform that you're on, that's one issue, but also with other people. When you have a private market that you were describing, you can protect that knowledge just between you and your suppliers. Maybe you could sign some contracts and then the marketplace would facilitate uh, the enforcement of that contract as well, because then it's only between you um, and uh, those uh, sellers. And I wanted you to kind of talk about something I've heard you mention before, because um, you might be more familiar with it in terms of supply chains, uh, the, the medical um, industry. So this is an area I'm fascinated in, and it goes into real gray market territory. But I think there's an ethical argument for this. Now, if you live in the States, uh, which I believe you do, uh, mm -hmm. you, you're in, yeah, um, you know, the cost of a drug, uh, there's a really good series on Netflix, by the way, called Dirty Money. Uh, and there's an episode in that series which focuses on Valium, which basically bought up pharmaceuticals companies to effectively get the patents to those drugs and then just jacked up the price of those drugs massively. Now, those same drugs would be available in generic versions for a, a massive fraction of the price. So, there was one drug example where I think it was for a rare disorder, hemochromatosis. That drug in the States had suddenly gone from $100 to $10,000, pretty practical, virtually overnight. Now that same drug, if you look around, you can get that for like a couple of dollars. You know, you go to India, you're gonna get that for a couple of dollars. You go to the UK, you get that for about 10, 20 quid. I'm not, I'm not gonna give exact numbers, but that this is the kind of proportions we're talking for. So a company that can charge $10,000 for an essential life-saving drug that is designed specifically to prevent serious degeneration and disability, i.e., you know, if a company can charge $10,000 for that legally in one jurisdiction, even if that's ethically abhorrent and immoral, you know, from your viewpoint, being able to then purchase that exact same drug from another country for what a few cents, and that can then lead to a massively marked improvement in that person's long-term quality of life. I think that's a bit of a no-brainer, regardless of what the rules are, you know, internationally. And I think networks like this 
should give people who exploit um, our inability to arbitrage effectively or exploit customs rules for um, malicious uses, even if they're legal. You know, okay, the guy wants to make money, I can understand that. But if people are using that to exploit value, to, to artificially inflate value, to exploit others, I think networks like this, you know, you know, I I like the idea of people then, you know, I like the idea of someone in, in the Far East or in India with a legitimate pharmaceuticals firm who creates genuine working generic medications, then being able to ship that across to countries where those exact same drugs are 10,000 times more expensive and give them to people who need them. I, I see a real genuine ethical argument for it in terms of foreign aid, in terms of aid, okay, mm -hmm. if you look at, if you look at the transmission of aid between nations, between NGOs and, and countries or between charities and the places they operate in, you know, if you look at the ground level, there's usually a lot of intermediaries who want little cuts on the side, who want their bribes. I think networks like this allow you to create direct channels between the the consumers who need those goods, the people who need those goods, and the people who are providing them, and then bypass entities that may wish to exploit or pervert that process. So I think networks like Particle have a tremendous amount of potential, of ethical good potential. So that's where I stand. Right, right, uh, a great point. Um, something I thought maybe you could expand on, uh, something that I was thinking about recently, was um, the fact that our world is becoming more global. And uh, when you buy a product, generally you have parts uh, made in different parts of the world, or it's one part is manufactured somewhere, or it's all assembled in the end country. And so there's a global supply chain um, behind most of the products that we use today. And uh, I was just wondering if you could give some insight into how private marketplaces could help with facilitating that movement over over borders. Okay, so essentially, what what a private market does is it it, it creates a form of private settlement. So if I create if I'm using say a network like Particle and if I purchased a good on there, um, there is no third party that can firstly because of Ring CT and CT all the transactions on the Particle network are effectively anonymized. So if you put an order, the buyer, seller and amounts are effectively blinded from third party analysis. So if you are a formal auditor or government agency or corporation that's analyzing these transactions, all you're going to just see is flows of amounts, but you don't, you just, you don't see what goods are being transacted with who. So then it becomes a question of, Right. It, then it's a case of really, okay, the settlement is effectively happening in a, in a manner that's very independent of, a, of direct overview. So I guess, I guess in terms of facilitating global trade, it, it then comes down to just shipping the thing. Uh, and then when, when you're looking at shipping, I, 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 kind of, I kind of think about more customs. I, I think it will basically, I think networks like this, if they gain traction, I believe they will. I think they will put a real focus and onus on customs if you're going to start regulating the flow of goods. 
rather than um, than actually internal auditing and oversight of supply chain. I, I guess it will just allow greater free flow of settlement. Okay, it it will probably it will actually allow greater free flow of goods. Um, but I, I feel that in terms of the global supply chains, I feel that's very much going to be dependent on local customs services and local customs procedures uh, and the funding that goes into those services. So I, I think it will put an onus on them. Um, but what, 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 were you, what were you? What was sort of going through your head with that? Um, I was I was thinking that a lot of the times, say if I come up with a, a product idea and it's a physical product and you know it's cheapest to get it manufactured in some Asian country like say China or Vietnam for example a lot of the times uh, the people the person who is not from there and they go there to try and do business they're reliant on their producer and supplier over there not um, producing for someone else or using the knowledge that they're they're doing now they have now about this product that the person who came up with the idea is going to um is is going to markets where they are so i i feel as if somehow it's i mentioned this earlier but i was thinking more in terms of global global globalization and cultural issues that make it harder to know what's going on they could still you know not respect what this person's idea is the entrepreneur however it's more it's easier to enforce any sort of nda um contract yeah. between parties because the but the medium of exchange allows it that's what i was, yeah. I was thinking okay no I, I see what you're getting and this goes back earlier to what i was saying about intellectual property uh and essentially protecting it which is you know if you're on a network where you don't need to know anything about the person you're transacting with and they don't need to really know anything about you all you've got is your shipping address the, the, the most analysis in theory you can really do is where those goods are going to. You don't really know what they're being used for. You, you don't know what that they're meant for. So I agree with you. I think it can. I think it can facilitate by protecting intellectual property in that way. I think it can actually facilitate global trade in numerous ways. And I think it can speed up that flow. So I think, as you said, you're right. People do spend a lot of time trying to find ways to protect their privacy. There's usually an extensive cost involved with it. There's usually a, a lot of trust, a lot of research. You, you have to find people that you trust. You then have to make sure they have enough reputation or they can, you have to sometimes test them, see that they can live up to their ends of deals. You still, you see, even if you trust that person, you still don't know until something's gone through. Whereas on networks like Particle, which are effectively automated and remove the need for any sort of trusted intermediaries, just want to go into this actually, the escrow model for Particle, it's just buyer and seller only, so that there's no human third party in that escrow overseeing it, and there's no commission either. So essentially, it's a commission-free escrow where buyer puts a deposit, seller puts a deposit, and if the goods are received in great order, buyer and seller get their deposit back. But if either the buyer or the seller don't, you know, think that this has happened, then both of them lose their deposits. And uh, I think that's a really powerful concept because that's what facilitates the backbone of allowing you to 
buy and sell goods online without knowing anything each about each other. And that's essentially at the same time, you, you know, you don't have the commission associated with traditional third party escrow. And you have to go through the process of finding those trusted third party human escrows or vetting them because it's all automated on the underlying technology of the, of the particle blockchain. So I think, yeah, I agree with you. I think there's a great use case there. And going back to friction, I think by removing those barriers, I think you can speed up the rate of exchange and in turn, you know, and, and in turn by speeding up that rate of exchange, speed, exchange, speed up the rate of value and the rate of production. So yeah, I think it can improve global production. And I think it can be, I think networks like this can be a factor towards improving our global economy. Right, and I just want to mention um, the title because I think it's cool for what uh, Kapoor was just describing in terms of particle escrow service. It's called Mad Escrow for Mutually Assured Destruction Escrow. And it's based on um, game theory, exactly what he was just uh, describing. So. I think that's all I could really think of to talk about specifically in terms of private markets. Is there anything else you think we could mention before we move on to the more current stuff? Um, I think they're great. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, the particle network's already live, so you can actually download the desk. You can download a desktop client to um, Windows, Linux, or, or Macs. Uh, and access. There's currently just the one marketplace, but they're building that market management feature that will allow you to effectively build an infinite number of markets on the particle network and switch between some. So I'm looking forward to that. And I, I think, you know, I think we've discussed a fairly broad, broadly, we've discussed an extensive number of cases. I suspect that as networks like this grow, and I'm convinced a network of this nature will succeed, which is why I'm so strongly behind particle. Um, I think we'll see numerous other um, good use cases evolve, things that people I don't think would have expected. Yeah, I just want to um, put this out there to the audience, depending on what industry you work in, for example, if you can think of anything just hearing this conversation and the features we've described, where private markets could be applied, anything we didn't think of, I would be very curious to hear uh, about other use cases that we haven't thought of ourselves. Um, so we also wanted to discuss uh, a bit more current events and a uh, more general topic. And the first one is about BACT and what happened happened there. Oh my God. So it was first so of all, uh, dis describe very briefly what it is, just in case people don't know, and, and then um, like what your thoughts are. So BACT is basically uh, a trading platform. We'll, we'll call it a trading platform. So so what, it would, what BACT would allow you to do or what back would allow people to do is it was basically registered with certain agencies and authorities Let, let's treat it like a company and what it would then say is okay we can they would be licensed and authorized to take money from various investment firms that might be representing special groups with very large sums of money say you know pension hold pension pots um, or you know certain sort of long-standing trust funds, certain long-standing institutional investment profiles, basically really large sums of money that are regulated to only be invested in certain very safe ways with certain very strict rules. The, the BACT would effectively allow that sort of money to enter the cryptocurrency space. Um, so the excitement about BACT was that 
okay, when that goes live, we're going to get loads of people who run hedge funds or pensioners putting money to buy Bitcoin, you know, as a digital gold and store it. Um, so there's a lot of there was a lot of speculative hype, you know, because Bitcoin it went to 20k and then it crashed to 3k. It's been gradually building back up again, and it was at 10k. And people, if you go to Bitcoin markets and you go look like online, there's a general trend within people in those circles to go. Here's the bull case for the near future. Fact is launching. We're going to get a whole influx of new money buying Bitcoin where it normally wouldn't have been able to. You know, retail investors who may have been afraid of buying Bitcoin directly. Might go through the service, might go through intermediaries to then buy Bitcoin,、mm-hmm. using backed as a custodian, etc. And you know that that's you know huge sums of money potentially again in, you know certainly in the billions potentially in the trillions. So there's a lot of anticipation there. But then you know I was on nights, I was working A and E nights,、uh, and literally I think I maybe check into, I think I check the price like once a day. Like I said, you know, I, I skim a forum or two nowadays. I'm fairly busy, and I just looked. I was like, "What? Twenty-five percent down in it?" Like I looked. I was like, "What? Why did the price of Bitcoin go down twenty-five percent?" And I had no idea what was going on. And then I realised that back futures had been released literally just before that happened. And it, I, I, I had no understanding until I knew that that was the just after back to being released. And then I realised. Yeah, it, it it was it was a sell the news event. It was a really classic case of you know there were a bunch of people who clearly thought let's short this. I suspect this is probably a really well coordinated short position by you know、uh, by some of the by the institutional but by some of the larger players and the institutional players and people who've been in the money game for a while. I suspect a ton of them had pre-planned short positions. Because I suspect they anticipated that the amount of money moving into Bitcoin for a long position via back was probably nowhere near enough to justify the size of the short position they could physically take out. And we saw that, you know, 25% in a day. What would have likely happened is they would have immediately launched a bunch of short positions together. That would have dropped the price of Bitcoin. That would have triggered stop losses. On via bots trading on the exchanges or via stop losses from retail and other holders, that would then trigger a further sell-off. That would then trigger a series of cascading stop losses, and that would trigger a cascading, you know, crash. Basically, you, you've seen this before. You know, if you've ever seen any of the flash crashes that happened in crypto, I remember when Ethereum went. Was it from? I can't remember if it was from three hundred dollars to twenty cents or something. I, I can't remember. Because, because literally, I think it was on Kraken. Someone initiated a two million dollar short position or something silly. They used leverage with two million as the principal, and they were able to just crash the price instantly before it rocked back up. And it's essentially a similar thing that happened here.、Um, we should not assume. You know, take retail sentiment. Go ask a hundred people: Would they buy Bitcoin? If you can get like. Fifty or seventy-five percent of people saying, "Yeah, something like backed is a great idea for now for an immediate launch."、Uh, 
you know, but, you know, if you ask them now, I think retail sentiment's still being crushed from the last bull run when Bitcoin went to 20K and literally every single out. I remember I held one called, I was mining one called Hushcoin. I was mining that for a dollar and I knew it was a total, I, I just didn't think much of it. If I went to $20, that should have been my signal to sell everything because, you, you know, because you need, Anyway, a lot of retail investors were buying Bitcoin at, at, lo at a local peak. I'm calling it a local peak because I'm a long-term bull on crypto. You know, they got burned. A lot of these people are relatively naive to investing. A lot of them lack discipline. A lot of traders are emotional. A lot of newcomers are emotionally driven. People, by their nature, tend to be quite emotionally driven. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, retail-wise, got burned. Now, a platform like Fact directly and indirectly is meant to appeal to the retail crowd and you know I think here's here's my criticism of Bitcoin as it is you know it was meant to be a currency and some point along the way it became a store of value so instead of being a thing that facilitated the flow of transactions which in turn would facilitate the generation and flow of value it became a storing point like gold and that's a good thing because gold is you know okay yes it's good to store value but when you're storing value you're not generating it now right that means that's a niche market gold is a niche market it's longer in its history culturally but it's a niche market. The broader investment market is much bigger than gold. So when Bitcoin chooses to box itself in by being digital gold, and I think that's a use case, and I think it has room to grow, but it limits itself. I don't think it has as much room to grow as I think it should have if it would focus, if it would, you know, as it would have if it, if it stuck the course. Um, or its original intentions. So I think there's a limit to how much Bitcoin can grow. I think there's a limit to how much attention BACT can attract. And I think BACT will attract interest over time. I think as the idea of Bitcoin is more understood, I think as the idea of digital gold is better understood. I'm not talking about tokenized gold. I think that's trash. Okay, I won't go down that road. But I think Bitcoin as a concept of being digital gold, as in a as as in having no requirement for a physical location, but serving the same function as gold. I think that has got a valuable a value in this space. I just don't think it's as big as the Bitcoin crowd think it should be, and I think that's the great misconception. I and and for me, I'm more. What are you going to create, right? If you're going to attract people, what are you going to create? If I'm an artist, my value is based on what I create. If I create a load of great paintings that people value, that's me generating and bringing value into this world. If I'm a squirrel storing acorns, okay, that allows me to get fat on acorns, but that doesn't really do anything for anyone else. That's not a draw for other people to come visit my tree full of acorns. Oh, hey, hey, do you want to check out my acorn filled tree? No, thanks. I've got other things to do. And that's where my position is. I, I agree with you, but I would say um, I do think that uh, Bitcoin 
has become de facto digital gold because it, it at least in its current version it can't scale to the point of being used just as a day-to-day -day currency with low enough transaction fees for the average which is most people not in the u.s individual however from what i understand from conversations i've had with people who are uh, very much into bitcoin they still think that bitcoin is a currency and that is what they are championing it for its use case as even though we're saying from what i just said that actually it's not for the average person the way it is now so i would just say that as a kind of supporting statement to to what uh you were saying and then you were you were talking about backed um so uh, I just very briefly read something about it and I think it was like 60,000 trade volume on the first day of opening. It was like super low. It was something in the in the thousands. Um, yeah. And that was very disappointing. Were you saying when you were describing institutional investors probably having um, um, deciding to short um, Bitcoin, were you saying that people knew beforehand that that backs wouldn't have um, as high volume as other people uh, expected, and so they decided to set up a stop loss um, beforehand. Or are you saying that people first heard about the news and then decided to sell when they realized, oh, this isn't going to be as big and breeding as much newcomers as we thought? Because that's kind of a confusing uh, thing in my head. I think, and it, it's different from both. So. If I was working for JP Morgan, I would have considerable financial resources at hand and I'd be have the ability to do research beforehand. Now, if I was a broker for JPM, uh, here's what I would do. I would gauge retail sentiment and do some research and basically do some models predicting how much money I expect would predict would flow into BACT on its first day of trading. And then I'd get a rough figure and then I'd go, how much money do I have on hand? OK, if it's a, a huge amount of money that's going to come in, if my research indicates a ton of money is going to come into this service, then I guess I'd set myself up for a long position. If I think very little money is going to come in, but I can see the sentiment of the local trading market is bullish, then I would be inclined to set up a short position. Now, if I wanted to amplify the chances of my short position being successful, I might coordinate or collude. I don't want to say collude, but I might coordinate because that's making accusations. But I might, and I'm not, I'm just using JPM as hypothetical, not, not as an actual example. But I might coordinate and collude with other parties that, and share that research and may share, I may access other parties' research who are looking at the same thing. And if we come to the same conclusion, we might decide, okay, let's just jointly agree we're gonna short this thing on this day. And that will put in, we'll, we'll use this much capital and we'll put a decent leverage weighting, like tenfold leverage and set our own stop loss. And that will totally overwhelm whatever money's going in via the long position. It will scare the crap out of all the retail investors. It will cause the price to drop. Anyone who already has stop losses in place, those will get triggered. It will allow me to then reopen my shorts and keep going and going and going until we find the next real support. I think that's what happened. Well, what do you think of the theory that 
a little birdie told me that it was perhaps this whole thing was set up in order to fight Bitcoin because uh, BACT has ties to governments that may not want um, Bitcoin to really exist at all. And so they were probably hoping to do what you described. I just a theory that I heard um, to an even larger scale to like shake confidence, shake the confidence in uh, Bitcoin as a currency. What do you think of that theory? If governments were that smart, I think they'd be going after Facebook Libra a lot harder. Uh, I, I, I can believe that. I believe that there are probably some governments that aren't that. <sighs> I, I could believe that. I, I could believe that. Okay, I think that's possible. I'm not going to disagree with you. I think that's a possibility. It's honestly a theory that I heard. Like, I never came up with it. Theory, I could buy into that as a narrative. I personally think what my view, which is it's relatively easy if you've got access to the resources to do the research and model the predictions and make an educated guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's very easy to go down the road of conspiracy theories. I have rolled in a lot of circles. I don't, I will tell you this governments, they're not that smart. <laughs> you just have to look at. Look, look at your, look at, look at Fox, look at CNN. I, look, <laughs> I, I Google Donald Trump every day because it gives me a laugh. <laughs> a good sadistic, ironic laugh every day from that. And I feel, you know, if you work in organizations and large ones, you very quickly realize that they're not that right. I work in the NHS. I've worked in the NHS for 10 years. I can tell you now. And there are a lot of people that aren't that bright, but they happen to hold significant positions of power. Uh, So I think giving that too much credit, I would say, let's look at the path of least resistance. Let's look at how the world generally works day to day. People do research, people make predictions, people do modeling, and people make educated guesses. That's how society, that's how science and society works and if you if you go with me that's that's where i'm going with you know yeah there are going to be some governments that might be interested in not having bitcoin around but actually there are going to be governments that are interested in having bitcoin around as Mm -hmm. well i I suspect if you want a real geopolitical answer from my point of view you know if you look mark carney governor of the bank of england um very recently in the last few months basically said we need to start digitizing our currencies um i don't know if this is fake news my it's dad not, asked it wasn't me, fake i i read through the the whole the whole um thing it then, wasn't fake news he really said that did he say something about ethereum or something because that might be the fake news no he, he didn't say about um ethereum he just he didn't even mention crypto, but he said something very similar uh, to crypto. I, I can't remember the exact term. He came up, it was like a world uh, like hegemonic res- reserve currency that was like digital. So he's, he yeah. just described a currency that was like a cryptocurrency and that that would be very useful because a lot of uh, emerging markets around the world are currently so dependent on what happens to the US as a global reserve currency and it's not reliable. So that's basically what he said in, in a nutshell. Yeah. And that's exactly my point. He's he's a smart man and he, even he realizes 
the, 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 the political situation in the US has made people very nervous internationally. That's no one's going to pretend or lie if you speak to people privately who aren't directly dealing with those guys. Um, and, and from where I stand, for Mark Carney to openly say that says to me that he's fundamentally supportive of the idea of digital currencies or even a neutral currency to act as a reserve to avoid the geopolitical bullshit that happens on a day-to-day -day basis. People want to negotiate with each other without having to kind of step around the niceties that we sometimes have to give when presented with the platitudes of so-called greatness. Sorry, that was me rambling. No, no, no. I, I think what you said um, definitely had merit. I do think, oh, there was one more thing I wanted to say, but I can't remember. Oh. Um, I don't know if you heard because I, I don't remember the name of it, but there was another platform, not Backed, but had higher volume, way more, like in the millions than Backed. Did you hear about it? Is it? It's not Grayscale Invest. It's not the Grayscale GBTC, is it? No, or, no, I don't think or, so. It was like something uh, very legit. Next, next, they not launched, I think. Who? I can't remember, but they had more volume. Yeah, what, what happened? I don't remember. It was just I thought maybe you had heard about it and could say some more. But there was another platform that was also like futures contracts um, for Bitcoin, um, and yeah. they and they had much more volume uh, than Backdate. And I thought, well, even if Back didn't do well, um, there was some other platform that did, so it shouldn't really um, dampen the a positive sentiment towards Bitcoin. But I'm not sure what I'm talking about, so <laughs> forget about it. No, I just thought, uh, like I heard so we, We've already had ETFs. We've already had ETFs released. We've already got synthetics for, for trading Bitcoin on stocks, on regular stock markets. They're, they're there. Um, I, I don't really spend too much time worrying or thinking about that. I personally am not a big fan of synthetics as a concept. Uh, I think they're dangerous. I think they created a lot of problems uh, historically for the last 10 years uh, or further. But yeah, yeah, no, it's happened. And it just goes back to my original point, which is that um, I think you want me to give you the controversial view? My personal controversial view is I think this crash has the potential to be bullish for something like Ethereum. I, I, yeah. And the humanists are going to hate me if I go down this line of argument. Uh, and it just goes back to why I went into Ethereum in 2016 as opposed to Bitcoin, which is that I can see how smart contracts and I can see the sorts of structures that smart contracts create. And I, I keep an eye on DeFi. Anyone who's watching this, I'm a big fan of MakerDAO. I don't hold MKR tokens. I think it's one of the best concepts ever. Um, and some of the other products in the Ethereum ecosystem, I, I think tokenized real estate, which is going on in the, if we do another pod, if we do another discussion, I will discuss Ethereum. I will discuss valuations. I'm, I think Ethereum has a very, very low fundamental value. They'll hate me if I talk about Ethereum at length, but I'm gonna flash for now. No, I and was, just has sorry. a I has a much bright I think has a much better speculative future than a lot of people may put it out to be, um, and I think that's because things like tokenized real estate is being done on ERC twenty. I think that's because you've got 
MakerDAO, decentralized finance, decentralized loans, decentralized credit scoring, decentralized. There are so many, you know, good verification. There's so many different use cases that have been pioneered, developed, or actively innovated on that chain that are generating value or creating efficiencies, not creating inefficiencies, but creating efficiencies, which in turn creates value and accelerates exchange uh, and creates liquidity. I think, I think if we if we're going to look towards, uh, I feel like I'm losing my own point here. Um, I don't think we can keep using store of value as as a as an ongoing push case argument for something to keep going up in value. Uh, at the end of the day, if you look at it, it becomes there's a point where it becomes a greater fool's argument, and then the price stabilizes. And if it's culturally gained enough relevance and value, and I think Bitcoin has, I think Bitcoin's a very good form of digital gold, and I think it will grow from here. But where it grows to is a matter of speculate of of ongoing, uh, you know, predictions. Um, but when it gets to that place, where does it go from there? And I think it comes down to what is it doing, or what can it create? Um, yeah. Ah, uh, okay. I was gonna say that I think that's a great idea for a potential um, next topic together is to discuss Ethereum. I would say, just to put it out there, uh, that from what I understand, Ethereum also faces similar issues to Bitcoin in terms of scaling as well. So that's just I think that's something that can change over time. Like even if right now a network is is struggling, um, and maybe it seems even not going down paths that could help with scaling. I'm thinking about Bitcoin, that can shift um, in the future. So I don't want to start that argument now or discussion now, but um, before we both get blamed, I just want to say I'm optimistic <laughs> that both will achieve scalability. I, I'm I am optimistic that both will will overcome their challenges. So that's where I'll, that's my yeah. Okay, okay. Well, that's good because we should wrap up now. Uh, just to kind of summarize, we talked about private markets and uh, our, both of our favorite um, coin and the only one that we, we really know of is doing it in this way which is totally based on the tech um, and not in, in human with human intervention to create a, a trustless system and then also about use cases and we talked about the back crash and then we also discussed a bit the general crypto space and bitcoin um, and how we see that working out in the future so do you have any last words or anything you want to let people know um, uh, crypto ramble, it's been great. Um, buy particle, buy part. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I won't say that, but I think that particle is an awesome coin. As you know, it's in my tagline, like I, I'm all about particle. So thanks for coming on and sort of discussing this. I think that private markets, decentralized marketplaces can really change the face of how people trade and do commerce with each other. And like you mentioned in the beginning, it's really a going back to how things were before in terms of fungibility and the using cash and the, the or new digital world doesn't have to remove um, that fundamental, what I think human is um, human right, which is privacy. So. Um, yeah, thank you for watching. Um, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. You can also find Joe on Twitter. I'm not sure what your handle is. And you can go read up more on Particle at particle.io. You can also find this video on other video platforms as well. 
Um, so thank you and have a have a good day and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.